I can hear another ambulance. I've never heard this many ambulances. I think it's just COVID constant. It's just, it's grim. COVID-19 has wreaked havoc around the world and has deepened pre-existing inequalities. But this isn't the only global crisis the world is experiencing, and it won't be the last. What, what, what seems to be the, 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 the gathered wisdom on this is that this is the first of many kinds of crises that we are facing. Democratic crises are one. Uh, we're also facing the climate crisis, uh, and perhaps there are future pandemics to come. And coexisting with all these crises, which are causing deepening inequalities, there's the law. Equality law. Law which is supposed to protect people against inequalities and discrimination. So we wanted to devote our academic energies to think about, well, the pandemic has happened. This is how inequality was exacerbated. This is how equality law responds to it. This is how it falls short. But we wanted to say, what happens when similar crises occur in the future? You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Christy, podcast producer at the Oxford Human Rights Hub, and in collaboration with Shreya Artre, Associate Professor in International Human Rights Law at the University of Oxford, we're putting together a special four-part series on equality law in times of crisis. We want to know what we can learn from the way equality law has served us, or not, during crises like the pandemic, so we can prepare better for the future. We've been speaking to human rights experts in Kenya, Brazil, Australia, the EU, the UK and Ireland who are studying equality law, legislations and policies and the way that they interact with crises, including the COVID-19 pandemic. These experts and others you'll be hearing from throughout the series are all part of a research project into exponential inequalities, essentially looking at the way inequalities grow and compound during crises. This project is coordinated by Shreya Artre, Associate Professor in International Human Rights Law at the University of Oxford. So in the early days of the pandemic and, and, and since then, frankly, until now, what we've seen is that there's a recurrent reminder that the pandemic has contributed to exacerbating existing inequalities. And this was being thrown around all around from uh, people who, was, who were working on, uh, say, gender and, and, and studying uh, exponential rise in violence against women from early days in the first lockdown in, in China, to people who are studying, say, health inequity. So across the board, it seemed to be that everybody was bringing up that the pandemic had done something to existing inequalities. It had worsened them. We wanted to understand if everybody was saying that, what, if anything, could equality law do about it? But before we get into the way equality law interacts with crises and the effect this has on people's lives, I want to pause for a moment to think about the very basics of how we understand equality and non-discrimination and the purpose of equality law more broadly. Protected characteristics in equality law are what make equality law equality law. So by protected characteristics, we, we mean identities such as race, religion, um, or protected markers, uh, even if they're not identities such as um, ethnicity, uh, language, culture, um, sex, gender, sexual orientation. 
So protected characteristics like ethnicity, language, gender, sexual orientation are all things people might suffer discrimination or inequalities because of. And equality law is there to guard against this. And this is where we need to make a distinction between direct discrimination and indirect discrimination. Let's stick with direct discrimination first. Direct discrimination is discrimination such as less favorable treatment, which happens on the ground of something. So say if you're denied uh, employment, even though you're the best candidate for the job, just because you're a woman, you're being denied uh, that employment because of your gender. So that's direct discrimination. Somebody is invoking your, your sex slash gender as the reason for denying your employment. That's direct discrimination. And what about indirect discrimination? So a common example of indirect discrimination is, for example, you have uh, a policy for wearing a uniform at uh, educational institutions or in, in, in certain kinds of employment, say uh, in, in airlines, um, where air hostesses and air stewards wear a particular uh, dress and that uh, uniform policy basically bars people from, uh, say, exhibiting religious insignia. And, and that could be discrimination, uh, on, uh, which is indirect in nature on the basis of, say, someone's religion, because although the policy is neutral, that it applies to everyone, it only impacts, say, somebody who, uh, say, wears um, headscarves. So it impacts Muslim women in particular, but it's indirect because Muslim women are not targeted directly, but it's indirect in nature. And often discrimination isn't just happening on the grounds of one single characteristic, such as your sex or gender. Multiple characteristics can compound to create an even more unequal experience of the world and of crises too. So if you happen to be a black woman, you seem to have been impacted worse by the pandemic, uh, say in relation to health inequity or in relation to access to reproductive justice. So multiple characteristics influence what we're calling exponential inequalities. Exponential inequalities basically being the way inequalities grow more and more rapidly. In our case, we're looking at how this happens in times of crisis. And crises themselves can come together and interact to compound people's experience of these sorts of inequalities too. We're also interested in intersecting crises and not just intersecting grounds. We want to see how pandemic as a, a crisis also relates to ongoing crises such as democratic deficit or climate crisis or the austerity crisis in, 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 in the UK and elsewhere. And we want to see how these different kinds of crises build onto one another to make things even worse. These sometimes intersecting crises affect all of us, but they affect those with pre-existing disadvantages even more. So uh, the COVID-19 crisis has exacerbated the issues regarding to access to land and housing in Kenya, particularly for informal settlers and slum dwellers. This is Victoria Miyandazi, advocate of the High Court of Kenya and law lecturer at the University of Embu. In Kenya, informal settlers have always had it uh, difficult, particularly in terms of um, evictions and forced evictions without uh, proper notice and uh, at improper times when it's raining, for instance, uh, in times of crisis and so on. So already we have this problem. And uh, then we have the COVID-19 pandemic, which obviously led to a lot of people losing their, their jobs, a lot of people uh, being 
distorted in terms of how they live. Victoria goes on to tell us about how in Kenya there were lockdowns and curfews during the COVID-19 pandemic and that these evictions would sometimes take place during the curfews, which could end up leaving people homeless. And on top of that, travel restrictions and hostile police could make things even worse. In terms of the measures the government had put in place to curb the spread of COVID-19, one of them was basically a locking down of also passageways, roads and so on to different from one county to the other. So we'd find that even if uh, evictees um, had a place to go um, outside of Nairobi, they couldn't be able to travel because there was that closure, as it were, of, of co- from county to county. So they couldn't travel. And not just that, you'd find that there was hostility as well, because you'd find that uh, once the curfew uh, period hit, then the police would be out to look for those who were breaking the curfew uh, period regulations. Lockdowns, quarantining and social distancing have been vital to help stop the spread of COVID-19. These same measures, though, have aggravated the conditions of vulnerable populations. These include women, children, disabled persons, refugees, asylum seekers, homeless persons, migrant workers, rural persons and travelling communities. Working from home has also brought about unequal consequences in varying ways for different groups of people, as described in relation to the EU by Jewel Mulder, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Bristol Law School. So I think there's quite a lot of discussion around the way how those working from home requirements during COVID-19 have impacted different groups across the EU. Now, what we can say with quite some certainty is that it did have a different impact on men and women um, because of the simple fact that the stay-at-home orders weren't just work-related, they were also related to childcare and schools and those children were at home, and there's a significant significant evidence that across the board, women were taking up a lot more of the um, additional childcare than fathers. Focusing on the UK, Diane Elson, Emeritus Professor at the University of Essex, reveals the unequal impact COVID-19 has had on different groups in UK society. So the impact on health has been worst in the most deprived areas of England, Wales and Scotland. Two thirds of the people who died from COVID-19 in March, July 2020, that first phase, were people with disabilities. Death rates from COVID-19 have been higher for Black, Asian and minority ethnic people than white people. Meanwhile, in Ireland, COVID-19 and the response the government took meant that Irish society had some particular challenges to face. Mark Bell, Regis Professor of Laws, Trinity College, Dublin. So I think that Irish society faced some unusual challenges. So one example where there would be a comparison with with the UK was on education. So at at, uh, two... Uh, different points in the pandemic and not only were schools closed but that also included uh, schools that provided support for children with disabilities and I'm aware that the UK uh, was quicker to sustain some of those services so for both for the children with disabilities and 
also for those who care for those children, particularly their parents, uh, that imposed a, a very considerable burden upon them. I think kind of what became evident over the duration of uh, the pandemic was that there were also um, impacts on groups such as young LGBT people who having to spend long times in one's home environment uh, could be problematic if your home environment wasn't a supportive one. And I suppose even more dramatically, uh, the situation of domestic violence. And it's clear that uh, women uh, experienced more domestic violence uh, during this period. As in Ireland and other parts of the world, in Brazil, cases of domestic abuse have risen during the pandemic. The term shadow pandemic has been adopted in some countries to refer to the catastrophic effect COVID-19 has had on levels of domestic violence. Marta Machado from the FGV Law School in Sao Paulo describes the ways the pandemic has contributed to a rise in domestic abuse in Brazil. So COVID crisis uh, affected women in Brazil in many different ways. And as happened in other, in other countries, we had like the situation of isolation with the aggressor. And at the, at the same time, some of the services were even interrupted. And so we knew that some shelters in Brazil were just closed. They were less comfortable to seek help in hospitals. So we really got to a dire situation. Brazil's right-wing populist president, Jair Bolsonaro, a self-declared pro-life activist, exacerbated this dire situation for victims of sexual abuse. During the pandemic, where the, the, the government was exposed to a very bad handling of the pandemic in Brazil, they started a moral battle against abortion rights. Uh, so it was like, it was almost a paradox because that was the moment that sexual abuse increased. Theoretically, we had to give more access to women, to abortion services, to uh, after violence care and etc. And that that was exactly the, the, they did exactly the opposite. There was a decree that inserted uh, abortion total ban as a, a, a goal, as an official goal of the government. And then there were two ordinances that aimed at um, putting more obstacles to women uh, to access legal abortion services. And then there's Australia, where pre-existing issues with age discrimination in the workplace have been exacerbated by COVID-19, as described by Alicia Blackham, Associate Professor at Melbourne Law School, University of Melbourne. Age discrimination has been a challenge in the workplace for many, many years. And that is the case in Australia. It's the case in the United Kingdom. It's probably the case in nearly every country. I don't think any jurisdiction is immune from the challenge of age discrimination at work. What we saw though in the COVID-19 pandemic is that all of the inequalities, all of the structural challenges in our workplaces were heightened or made worse. And that was partly the way that the pandemic played out, but it was also embedded by the way governments responded to COVID-19. So the incentives and the programs that were designed to support workplaces often served to exacerbate those inequalities at work. Existing global inequalities have also been highlighted further during the pandemic due to so-called vaccine wars fueled by nationalism. 
Cato Regan, Professor and Director of the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights at the University of Oxford, describes how existing patterns of global inequality have been brought into high relief through the unequal distribution of vaccines. The process of vaccine distribution in response to the pandemic has been uneven and unequal. If one looks even today at the figures of where vaccines have been administered per thousand members of the population, you can almost see the pattern of income inequality that exists across the globe perfectly represented in patterns of vaccine distribution. Crises are so broad and so sprawling, as these examples have shown, that we found we needed a broader definition of equality law than the more traditional definition. So I think traditionally equality law refers largely to either constitutional or domestic statutory law which prohibits discrimination in the forms that we discussed, direct discrimination, indirect discrimination. And these gamut uh, of provisions are normally found either in the constitutions and then perhaps developed in statutory law. That's what we normally refer to when we say equality um, law. But I think this project goes slightly broader than just looking at these statutory provision and thinking about policy as well. So we really do take law and policy of all general kind as thinking about all of them have something to say about equality and they're all necessarily trying to do better on 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 equality and i think we, we do expand the range of what we mean by equality law in that sense in this episode we've been hearing some of these diverse range of perspectives we've heard about pre-existing inequalities and the ways these were exacerbated during crises turning into exponential inequalities but now we want to know whether equality law and equality-related legislations and policies are up to the task of tackling the sorts of exponential inequalities we've been hearing about. Join us for episode two, where we'll be asking just that. If the Equality Act had been working effectively, there wouldn't have been any litigation. So to be clear, Hong Kong equality already fell far short of addressing inequality, even in so-called normal times. This podcast is part of a special series under the Exponential Inequalities Project. The project is led by Shreya Artre as the principal investigator of the British Academy Leverhulme Small Research Grant on Equality Law in Times of Crisis. The producer and presenter was me, Christy Calloway-Gale, assistant producers Monica Arango-Olaya, Gauri Pillay and Natasha Holcroft-Emmes. Transcripts were produced by Sarah Dobby and with music by Rosemary Allman. Thanks to Megan Campbell and Sandra Fredman for their generous feedback and guidance.